You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Good morning, everyone. Good to see everybody here this morning, and uh, Ned was telling us uh, just before the song service, I think it was this morning, that somewhere he heard that this was going to be the nicest Memorial Day weekend weather-wise that we've had in 20 years, you said? Somewhere. Somebody said that. Um, yeah, enjoy it while it lasts, right? I keep reminding my my students of the graduation day, first Sunday in June 2001, we had four inches of heavy, wet snow. Yeah. Could still happen. Probably not. Please turn to Job chapter 20. Job chapter 20. In his book titled, Job, a Man of Heroic Endurance, Chuck Swindoll tells this story. He says, not long ago I read of a pastor and a deacon who made plans to do some visiting of the lost in their neighborhood. Lost souls, he means. One particularly notorious unbeliever who was well-known in the community had visited their church the previous Sunday. He had signed a visitor's card and included his address. So they decided to drop by and talk with him about the good news. They rode together in the same car, and when they arrived in this exclusive residential section, they wound their way around the long driveway which circled in front of his large, gorgeous home. The lawn was thick and manicured, and the landscaping was elegant. Kids were playing hopscotch out in the driveway, and they could see past the intermotor court into the backyard where there was a beautiful pool with a large splashing fountain. There were three luxurious cars sitting beyond the brick arches, all of them new and spotless, tucked away in the fourth garage with a classic bright red Ferrari. Parking their car out front, both men could see the man of the house through the window of the study. He was sitting in a large, soft leather chair, laughing with his friends and having the greatest time, munching on a handful of popcorn with a tall, icy beverage in the other hand. At that moment, the young deacon turned to his pastor and said, Now tell me again, what kind of good news do we have for this guy? I'm sure you see the problem. Those who have an abundance of material possessions, resources, and or wealth often fail to see their need for anything else. Even in their affluence, they may desire more material possessions, resources, and or wealth. And though they may recognize that something is missing in their lives, they won't necessarily see salvation in Jesus Christ and following him as that something that is missing. Then there are those who may understand their spiritual need, but they love their wealth more than they love God, as was the case with the rich young ruler who approached Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, wanting to know what he needed to do in order to obtain eternal life. You remember what Jesus told him. He said, keep the commandments. And the man said, well, I've done that ever since I was young. And so Jesus, knowing that the young man loved wealth more than he loved God, told the man to go sell everything that he owned, give the money to the poor, and then come follow him. And Matthew records that the young man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus made the statement that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now Jesus did not say that having wealth is inherently sinful, but I can't think of one instance 
where Jesus commended wealth for wealth's sake, or where he promised that wealth would be a reward for those who follow him. With that said, let's look at some statistics. I actually have to start it up there. There we go. In 2014, last year for which we have complete data, apparently, in 2014, the median household income in the United States was $53,719 for the year. What that means is that half the households in the country had lower income than that number, and half had higher income than that number. That's the median. Now, that's not the average the average income was actually a bit higher at $65,751 per household. And the average, of course, is found by taking all the income reported and dividing it by the number of households reporting it. And certainly there would be income that's not even reported. Now, the difference between those two amounts, I'm not going to make you do the math or figure this out, but the difference between those two amounts shows that more households are below average than above, and that those who have very high incomes raise the average more than those who have very low incomes lower the average. So you know, it's skewed a little bit in average versus median. But don't worry about that. Here's a statistic that I think will surprise you. At least it surprised me. Almost 25% of households in the United States reported income of greater than $100,000 in 2014. Almost 25%. And then there's one more data point here that I think we ought to look at with regard to the bigger picture because you look at all those and you may be going, I don't know where the hell that's coming from, right? Back in 2013, an article in Forbes magazine dealing with things financial, money related, right? An article in Forbes magazine declared that the typical person in the bottom 5% of the American income distribution is still richer than 68% of the world's inhabitants. Bottom five, I'd say, now we're talking about all of us here, bottom five or higher, still richer than 68% of the world's inhabitants. So why am I telling you all this? I love asking that question. I don't know. You probably noticed. Well, there are two reasons. First of all, Job chapters 20 and 21 contain a discussion between Job and his friends Zophar about prosperity, wickedness, and God's judgment. And you might say, yeah, we've been hearing a lot about that. No, well, yeah, okay. But they're going to hear more today. Anyway, there's often a perceived connection between prosperity and religious devotion or between wealth and God's blessings. And I think Job chapters 20 and 21 can help us gain a better perspective on these things. Second reason I tell you all this. There are many today who would preach what is called a prosperity gospel. Literally saying that God wants you to be wealthy. And if you follow him faithfully, you will be wealthy. Of course, as we see from these numbers, wealth is relative, isn't it? But that's not what they mean. They mean even in regards to these numbers, you come out on the upper end of the scale, is what I'm hearing in the prosperity gospel. Now, usually this promise is presented as conditional, with the condition being that you send a certain amount of money to the person offering the promise. Clearly, someone is becoming wealthy here, but it isn't the person sending in the money, typically. 
I want us to think about these things as we look at Job chapters 20 and 21 in a message that I'm calling Debunking the Prosperity Gospel. And we're going to look at select passages from these two chapters as we consider this topic today. Actually, I'm not going to read a whole verse, I don't think, out of the entire two chapters of Job. So if you have them in front of you, you might follow along and see what I refer to when I mention certain verses and things contained in those verses. And I would encourage you to go home and read these on your own. But two chapters, I'm not going to read the whole thing all the way through. Now, as I was researching and studying for today's message, I ran across this quote attributed to a man named Justin Peters, a preacher and writer and speaker and so on. He said, The book of Job is the theological elephant in the room of the prosperity gospel. And I thought that was an interesting quote. I really did. And partly because I'd been coming to the same conclusion, though I doubt that I would have stated it quite so profoundly. The book of Job is the theological elephant in the room of the prosperity gospel. Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, all seem to be passionate proponents of the patriarchal period equivalent of the prosperity gospel. Saying things Along these lines, these aren't direct quotes, but saying things along these lines. Job, you know that the righteous flourish and the wicked perish. Job, you must be wicked because you've lost your wealth, your health, and your happiness. Job, if you would repent and turn to righteousness, your fortunes would be restored. And so far, from what we've heard from these guys, it seems like these men only know one song and they keep singing the same verse over and over. And in response, Job keeps telling them the same thing over and over. What's his his reply? He says, I'm not wicked. There must be some other explanation for my suffering. Well, in a nutshell, that's the interaction between Job and his friends. And that Job's statement is certainly true. But in Job chapter 20, Zophar does seem to acknowledge a difficulty with the prosperity gospel as presented by the three friends. What about... When the wicked prosper. That's a hard thing to reconcile with the prosperity gospel, either then or now. The psalmist Asaph devoted the first 16 verses of Psalm 73 to this issue. Listen to Psalm 73, verses 3 through 5 and 12 through 13. He writes, For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat, which was considered to be a good thing back then. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Go to verses 12 and 13, and he writes about them. Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. And that's a problem. When you contend that prosperity and health are God's reward for righteousness, how do you explain the wicked who flourish? Zophar's speech in Job 20 can be broken down into three statements that Zophar uses to address this situation. I'll just give them to you all at once. First of all, the wicked do not live long. This is Zophar's, I'm condensing down what he said in chapter 20. After an you know, introductory thing of, hey, Job, I'm going to tell, let's talk to you again. He says in verses 4 through 11, The wicked do not live long. 
He says in verses 12 through 19 that the pleasures of the wicked don't last. And in verses 20 through 29, he says, God will judge the wicked harshly. And he's talking about in that life, in the earthly life that we experience. Now, in regard to the brevity of the life of the wicked, Zophar says in verse 5, I'm going to quote some little things here out of these verses, so that's where if you're following along you can see this. Zophar says in verse 5 that their triumphing is short and their joy is momentary. In verse 7 he said that the wicked will disappear suddenly, causing those who knew them to say, where is he? Where'd he go? Zophar ends the first section in verse 11 by declaring that the wicked die while still in their youth, at least relatively speaking. Then Zophar explains that even though the wicked may prosper, their prosperity quickly turns to calamity. In verse 14, Zophar says that the food of the wicked, no doubt a pleasure when it was eaten, turns to poison inside him. Verse 15 is disturbingly graphic. Depicting a man taking in riches like others take in food, but then God forces him to vomit them up. And verse 16 is a reference to the greed of the wicked. So greedy, so eager to take more and more and more that they unwittingly swallow poison, metaphorically speaking, as they seek to increase their riches. And verses 17 through 19 say that the wicked do not benefit from the produce of the land. There it is, ready to be taken Rivers, fields, crops, whatever. Because they're bent on acquiring more and more wealth by exploiting the poor. But in the end, they cannot keep what they have obtained and they do not enjoy what they possessed because their possession was so brief. And then finally, Zophar asserts that justice will come fiercely and unexpectedly on the wicked. Saying in verse 23, that while the wicked are engaged in normal everyday activities like eating, God's anger will be rained down on him. That's an expression we still use today. And that's the expression that, that Zophar used here. God's anger would be rained down on him. Verses 24 and 25 use imagery from battle, depicting the wicked trying to run away from their fate, but the arrow pierces him through and brings him down. And in verses 25 through 29, Zophar proclaims that terrors, darkness, and fire await the wicked, and that God himself is the one who will administer this judgment on the wicked. And Zophar does mean, I believe, to be in that lifetime, in a relatively short period of time, cut off before the full extent of their days would ordinarily come about. And all that sounds pretty good. I mean, you know, we would like that maybe perhaps to be true. Unless you're the wicked, you wouldn't particularly want that, I suppose. But, you know, if you're trying to be righteous and you see the wicked prospering, you'd want to think that they're going to get theirs. Zophar has made the case that even if the wicked prosper... Oh, and and there's a subtext here. And by the way, Job, that means you. Okay? You you prospered for a while, didn't you, Job? Yeah, that was you, wasn't it? You, You must be one of the wicked. Even if the wicked prosper... That prosperity is only temporary. Much like yours, Job, now that you, you know, think about it. The life of the wicked is short. Hey, you know, your life is kind of turning out to be short, isn't it, Job? I mean, here you are, sick, you're on death's door. We don't think you're going to make it another week. And, yeah, you're having a hard time. And the wicked are like that. Life of the wicked is short. And you know what, Job? God will judge the wicked harshly. Isn't that what's happening to you, Job, right now? Hmm? Don't you think? Now you might say, well, that doesn't sound like the prosperity gospel to me. But I think it is exactly what is implied 
by the prosperity gospel, and sometimes it's explicitly stated. The prosperity gospel of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar was that those who are right with God would be blessed with riches, long life, and happiness. And that's the way that works. And in their minds, that was absolute and concrete. The prosperity gospel so many teach today is that those who are right with God will be blessed with riches, long life, and happiness. And it's presented as concrete and absolute, and that's just the way it is. And if that were true, well, then what would be the fate of those who are not right with God? Well, no riches, no long life, and no happiness, right? Yeah, let's go on to chapter 21. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have consistently presented in their speeches to Job their belief in retributive justice. In other words, righteous people are blessed by God because of their righteousness, and wicked people are punished by God because of their wickedness, and they mean in this world, in this life. It's an appealing position. It's one that many want to believe. But there's just one problem with it. Now, there might be more than one problem. There's at least one problem. Here's the problem we're looking at today. It is true that those who are righteous in God's sight will be blessed in eternity. And those who are wicked in God's sight will be punished in eternity. That's true. It is also true that sometimes those who are righteous in God's sight prosper in this life. And sometimes... Those who are wicked in God's sight suffer in this life. But for those last two, we would have to add the words, but not always, in order to present the real picture. And this is Job's objection to everything Zophar has just said in chapter 20. He might well have started chapter 21 with, really, Zophar? Really? Job's response to Zophar in Job 21 raises three questions that the prosperity gospel doesn't explain. The first one, give them all three to you again. Do the wicked always die young? Job addresses that in verses 7 through 16. The second question, do the godless always suffer calamity? Talks about that in 17 through 22. And in 23 through 26, Job asks the question, does death always fall hard on the wicked? Is there always that... Harsh judgment of God in this lifetime? The answer to all of these questions is no. And Job relates examples of these things that he has seen in his own lifetime or that he thinks that these other people, his three friends, ought to be aware of. First, Job says that at least sometimes the wicked live on and on, prospering and enjoying life. In verse 7, Job says that the wicked not only live long lives, but they become powerful and influential in those long lives. Verses 8 and 11 mention the descendants of the wicked as they live those long lives. They see many generations after themselves. In verses 9 through 12, Job paints a picture of a life at ease, comfort, and happiness for the wicked. And in verse 13... He says that even their death is as pleasant as it can be. As the wicked pass quickly without lingering illness or pain, they live that long, full life, and then quietly, peacefully, they're gone. In what may be the most disturbing verses of Job chapter 21, verses 14 through 16, Job says that the wicked enjoy all of these blessings of life, even though... They defy God and purposely reject Him and His ways. 
He says, the wicked thrive, though they say it would be useless for them to serve God in any way. And in this, Job again agrees with Asaph in Psalm 73, verse 11. As Asaph declares of the wicked, they say, the wicked say, how does God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? God, God's out there. If God's even there, he doesn't know what was going on here. Finally, and perhaps most troubling of all, Job states in verse 16 that somehow God is responsible for the prosperity of the wicked. You think about what he just said. This is taking what Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz has said and turning it upside down. That if the wicked prosper, it's because God made them prosper. That's, that's pretty hard to swallow. Not necessarily accurate either, but that's what he says. If either retributive justice in this life or the prosperity gospel were true, how then could the wicked enjoy these long, happy lives? Job uses imagery in verse 18 that we see in a number of other scriptures. Psalm 1, Hosea 13, Isaiah 29, Matthew 3, several other passages. In them, those passages, the wicked are described as chaff. And you know what chaff is. Chaff is that light, insignificant, worthless husk of a grain that once it's been separated from the grain is thrown up into the air and it's carried away by the wind because it, nothing to it, just gone. But in Job 21, verse 18, Job questions whether the wicked are always subject to such calamity. Are they really like chaff? He questions that because it doesn't seem to be universal. Job goes on in verses 19 through 21 to say that if God punishes the children instead of the father for the wickedness of the father. Now you think about what he's saying there. The idea that, well, maybe that person didn't suffer for his wickedness, but it's going to come back around to his family in the next generation. He, Job says, if God punishes the children instead of the father for the wickedness of the father, then justice wasn't given to the one who deserved it. If retributive justice is true, then the wicked should suffer for their wickedness in their own lifetimes. Punishing their children after they are gone doesn't affect them at all doesn't affect the wicked. They're gone. They don't care. He says that. What do they care for the next generation? They don't care. Job then claims that there is no justice in the life and death of the wicked, and no consistency either. Some live long and very prosperous lives before they die, while others live lives in which they receive nothing good. Either way, they both end up in the grave at the end they're both under God's hand, either to bless or to curse. How can you make blanket statements of God blessing the righteous materially, financially, or punishing the wicked in the same way, when there is no consistency to either one in the real world? At the end of chapter 21, we see Job's frustration being directed toward Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. The your and you, if you look at verses 27, 28, 29, and 34, all of them contain you or your or both. Okay, verses 27, 28, 29, and 34. The you and your there are all plural, indicating, I think, that these remarks are aimed at all three of Job's friends, and maybe perhaps in a larger 
in a larger way to all those who would hold that position of retributive justice the way these three friends do, or if you wish, prosperity gospel the way they did or others. Job says that he knows their arguments, he knows how they would try to refute the statements that he has made, but that the life experience that Job has had and the life experience of anyone who has any acquaintance with the real world, that life experience says that Job is right. Zophar has claimed that judgment is harsh and death comes with terror for the wicked. Job counters by saying that the wicked continue on, spared from calamity, living peaceful lives until they go gently into the grave without violence or they are buried with honor and dignity. In this way, the wicked join with countless others who have gone before and countless more who will come after without any disaster befalling them due to their wickedness. If Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar witnessed the wicked dying peacefully in full prosperity and long life, well, how then would they comfort? He uses the word comfort. He's using it so sarcastically. Well, how then, friends, would you comfort me like you've been comforting me so far, which isn't any comfort at all? If they would see it for themselves, if they would see for themselves the wicked dying peacefully in full prosperity and long life, well, then where would your argument be? Their entire argument against Job is demolished if the wicked are not always punished with calamity and early violent death. And Job has made a good case to say that they, they aren't. It doesn't always happen that way. Well, Job chapters 20 and 21, in my opinion, are an interesting discussion between Zophar and Job. But does Job's response to Zophar actually debunk the so-called prosperity gospel? Well, I think it does, though perhaps a bit indirectly, and here's how I, I, what my reasoning is. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar do not use the words prosperity gospel. They, they would never have thought to do that, but they definitely believe that God blesses the righteous with riches, happiness, and long life, while he cuts the wicked short, punishing them and, and bringing all sorts of calamity and despair on them. Today's prosperity gospel that so many would preach offers much the same thing. Wealth, health, and happiness to those who claim God's promises in faith with poverty, illness, and misery awaiting those who fail to measure up in some regard. And if the righteous, and I say if, and even then it's questionable, but if the righteous always prospered, and if the wicked always suffered, well, then the prosperity gospel might deserve another look. Might be something to it if it's universal and consistent. But it doesn't happen that way. The righteous don't always prosper, and the wicked don't always suffer. In our own world, in our own times, we see sometimes the wicked, and by the wicked, we don't have to mean anything more than those who do not have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You don't have to go any farther than that. Sometimes... The wicked are the most prosperous, longest-lived, and seemingly happy, happiest people around. And sometimes the most committed, the godliest, the most faithful, and most giving Christians in the world suffer in poverty, sickness, persecution, and even untimely and violent death. What, was God taking the day off there? Were those who knew 
those other people that thought they were such great Christians, were they deceived somehow and they weren't really all that godly and they weren't really committed Christians? How would that explain the apostles, all of whom suffered for the sake of Christ, and at least most of whom experienced poverty, sickness, and hardship, with all but one that we know of dying as Christian martyrs? How do we reconcile the prosperity gospel with Stephen, who was stoned to death, presumably before his time, right, for telling the truth about Jesus and about the Jews who rejected him? Rejected Jesus, that is. How do we reconcile the prosperity gospel with the fact that Paul wrote the Corinthian church about a collection to be taken on behalf of the poor Christians in Jerusalem? (laughs) Why wouldn't the Christians in Jerusalem obey the prosperity gospel and solve their own problem? Why were they poor? And in taking up that collection, Paul refers to the churches of Macedonia saying in a great deal of a excuse me in a great ordeal of affliction the christians in the churches in macedonia in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality affliction deep poverty those christians were not beneficiaries of the prosperity gospel, either before or after they took up that collection. And so, yeah, in my opinion, what Job presents here to us gives us uh, the counterpoint that says the prosperity gospel can't be what it's presented to be. But I have some other scriptures that also address some issues with that. And I've just got the references here. Uh, If you want to write them down, I'm going to read the whole passage. But here's the references that I've chosen. First one is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. You'll hear some very familiar words in this, I think. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10 says, Paul writing to Timothy, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness... He is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Get this, in the middle of verse 5 now, to the end. Between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And when they say gain, Paul says gain, he means financial gain. He says in verse 6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain, only now he's not talking about financial gain, when accompanied by contentment. Hmm. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Well, that doesn't sound like the message of the prosperity gospel to me. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, the familiar words I promised, right? For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We could stop there. I'm not going to. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. The other passages aren't as long as that one. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Make sure 
that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And that's what you need more than you need health or wealth or happiness. It would be my commentary on that verse. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. In Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus was speaking. Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Not even. Philippians chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. Paul writing to the Christians there. Uh, Macedonian Christians, uh, interestingly enough. Verse 29 and 30 of Philippians 1. For to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. That doesn't sound at all like health, wealth, happiness, does it? And then the last passage that I have here. Oh, and there are so many others. And I should have mentioned the one about Jesus. Yes? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you had your hand in there. Uh, I should have mentioned the one about Jesus saying, uh, what, what do we know about camels and eyes of the needles and rich people? Somebody? What do we know? Okay. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Paul, again, still writing to the Philippians. He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Talking about them providing for him materially. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Wait, if the prosperity gospel is true, Paul should never have had those times of being hungry and those times of suffering need. And he shouldn't have needed the Philippians to... Do that for him. See. There are many other scriptures which show that the prosperity gospel is not true. I should add, the Bible never says that having wealth is inherently wrong. The Bible never says that we should purposely seek poverty or illness, except in the case of the rich young ruler who loved money more than he loved God, and Jesus said, that's your problem, you need to get rid of that. Maybe if that's your problem, you need to get rid of that, but I'm not here to tell you that. As Christians... Though I will tell you this, we need to deny ourselves, take up our crosses daily, and follow Jesus wherever that takes us. As Christians, we need to love one another, not showing partiality to the rich. James warns us against that, doesn't he? But mutually meeting one another's needs. Most of all, and Jesus had this to say in the Sermon on the Mount, rather than storing up for ourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, we need to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy nor thieves break in and steal. Seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness. And when we do that, God will provide for our needs in his way and in his time. Now, I didn't get into naming names and pointing fingers. 
I didn't get into quoting this prosperity gospel preacher and that prosperity gospel preacher and all the things that they say because what I want you to be able to do is to see it when you encounter it and to avoid it and perhaps refute it if necessary. I wonder, and coming back to the opening illustration, if the prosperity gospel is true, if it were true, I should say, and that being a follower of Jesus makes you healthy, wealthy, and happy, how then will we reach those who are already healthy, wealthy, and happy to make them followers of Jesus? One of the more prominent prosperity gospel preachers, and again, I'm not going to name names, but uh, one of the more prominent prosperity gospel preachers tweeted this back in October of 2015. I didn't even want to put this up on the screen. Jesus bled and died for us so that we can lay claim to the promise of financial prosperity. Hashtag prosperity in Christ. Hashtag wealthy living. Hashtag abundant life. I hope you were paying attention during the communion meditation when you heard the real reason why Jesus died for us. That's not it. Now, the tweet was deleted after the author was bombarded by negative comments, but it was an accurate representation of that one's presentation of the prosperity gospel, and it was an accurate representation of the false premise of the prosperity gospel, which is that Jesus died to make you materially rich. No, he did not. Just can't say it any other way. No, he did not. I would counter that statement with this one from 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? In 1 Peter 3.18, so that he might bring us to God. Not so that he might bring us to wealth, but bring us to God. Or how about Romans 5.10, which tells us that Christ died for us so that we could be reconciled to God. Not so that we could reconcile our bank account, but so we could be brought into agreement with God. And then there's 2 Corinthians 5.15, which says that Christ died for all. Why? So that they who live in him, spiritually live, might no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Not me living for me, not you living for you in prosperity and health, but all of us living for Jesus who died and rose again on our behalf. Finally, I offer Hebrews 9.15. Jesus died so that we may indeed receive a promise, but it is not the promise of financial prosperity. Speaking about Jesus, Hebrews 9.15 says, For this reason, he, that's Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that, since a death, his, has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, the law of Moses, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Jesus died to redeem sinners and to give them the promise of the eternal inheritance, not the promise of financial inheritance. And Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. 
If you choose to follow him, or if you have already chosen to follow him, you may or may not become wealthy. You may or may not remain healthy, if you are healthy now. But you will receive an eternal inheritance that will continue to be yours long after all possessions and wealth and physical health, which is emphasized because we know what the other possibilities for our physical state is right now. When all those things cease to exist, your eternal inheritance will continue to be yours. Jesus offers salvation and eternal life to all who believe in him, who repent of their sin, confess their faith, who are immersed into him for the forgiveness of their sin, raised up, not in the works of men, but in the working of God. And so I ask you, would you accept Christ on his terms today? If so, please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.